Gospels to Mark chapter 2. Yes, I said Mark and not Leviticus. That might be a bit of a curveball for some of you. And just so you know, I was aware that Pastor Peter is doing a series in Mark, and so I did ask him if it would be okay if I could preach a, a, a passage that he will be coming to soon. But many of you know that I completed a almost a nine-day fast for, for health reasons, and I've just been reflecting on fasting, and so wanted to visit a passage that had meant a lot to me. And so we are going to spend one, just one week with this passage, Mark chapter 2, and then we will be going back into Leviticus for real. We'll be, we'll be diving into the first chapter. We'll be looking at verse 18 through 22. Let's pay careful attention to God's word. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples fast and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskin. This is God's word. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Well, as many of you know, there was a wedding last month. Brian and Allie were married. And I was also, as I was trying to heal my kidneys as much as possible, I wanted to have a two-week fast. And so in December, I had planned it out around drill and uh, holidays and this, this, this two weeks towards the end of January. And so I, I, I had that and I was fairly excited about it. I had that date locked in and then, then I realized, oh, Brian and Allie's wedding falls in the second part of my fast. It's like, well, hmm. What do I do about that? So I thought about it, and I came to Brian and said, Look, Brian, here's what's going to happen. I mean, I'm so glad for you guys. I'm going to come to the ceremony, but I I don't think I'm going to come to the reception. That would just be a little weird. And Brian said, Andrew, I I got it. That makes sense. No hard feelings. Well, should you fast or should you feast? And the answer from this passage is yes, at least a short answer. But, But we'll see it's even more complex than that. But here we have a growing opposition. There's an unknown group that questions Jesus. And Jesus, why don't your disciples fast like everybody else? All the other religious people. And as Jesus often does, his answer goes beyond settling a few you know, mis- minor misconceptions. It speaks about who he is and the appropriate way that his followers should act, both in his presence and in his absence. And what we see here is when Jesus is present, you should feast. Now, this all starts with the disciples. 18, verse 18, the people come and said to Jesus, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but yours do not? Now, by this point, large crowds are following Jesus. And just like now, when you get famous, you get attention, you get scrutiny. And so people are comparing Jesus' disciples to the other disciples out there. And, hey, Jesus, why is it that other groups are fasting, but but yours do not? Now, what's the motives behind this question? Is it? Is it innocent? 
pure curiosity? Well, probably not. Um, there are a lot of other stories in the section. All of them, besides this one, deal with Jesus' conflict with the religious authorities. So it makes sense that somebody has an axe to grind here. Uh, second of all, Jesus has already been participating in some questionable activities. You back up a passage and you'll see that Jesus called Levi, also known as Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him. Levi did, which was astounding. And then he threw him a party with all kinds of sinners attending. Not only had Jesus been feasting, but he'd been feasting with the wrong people. That's going to raise some eyebrows. And then, especially when the disciples don't fast. So they party, but they're not the fasting type. So why does this matter? Well, fasting was a key part of the religious uh, Jewish life. There was three pillars to Judaism around this time. There was prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. And it was important for several reasons. This fasting, this component of fasting. God commanded it in the Old Testament just once a year, but every day of atonement, Israel was to fast or to flick themselves for 24 hours before the day of atonement. And then there were the examples of the prophets calling for fasts of repentance. And, and out of this came a tradition of pious Jews who would begin to fast on tragic days of the Jewish calendar when Moses broke the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, when Nebuchadnezzar broke, uh, destroyed the temple, when Jerusalem fell to Babylon. But these days were set apart to mourn for what happened. And it, it became a patriotic thing, almost like when we fly the flag at half-staff or 9-11 or Pearl Harbor. And so for these Jews, this memorial days of fasting, it, it really expressed not only a national identity, but a repentance. And what they were doing was, in effect, calling God to fulfill his promises and bring salvation to Israel. Oh Lord, if we could just, the thinking was, if we could just keep your laws for one day, the Messiah would come. Would you hear us? We're fasting. And so then fasting became regarded as a good religious thing to do. It's the way that you show that you're dedicated and consecrated. Do you remember what the Pharisees prayed in, in Jesus' prayer? The, 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 the religious Pharisee, the righteous Pharisee, right? I fast twice a week. Pretty hardcore. It's probably from sunup to sundown, but still, that's, that's dedication. And so, maybe the closest thing for us today would be our, our quiet times, is how sometimes we have a, a measuring device of, you know, how are we doing with the Lord, whether that's helpful or not. Sometimes we look at it that way. Well, back in Jesus' time, if you were religious, you fasted. And how much did Jesus' disciples fast? Not at all. At least not in prominent ways, on prominent days. And so you can understand why people were asking questions. Uh, uh, Jesus, we're a little concerned about your religious credentials, why, why your disciples don't fast, right? Well, what's the best way when you're backed into a corner with the question? Well, you ask one of your own. Jesus says in verse 19, Can wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And there's a reason that I didn't attend Brian and Allie's reception. It would have been all wrong. Everyone's feasting and enjoying themselves, and there I am sipping some water. One of these things is not like the other. Right? You feel the tension. It's something's out of whack. And it's even more so for ancient weddings, because they didn't have many parties back then. And so when they did, they were a serious business. They could last for days or a week. You kill the calf and you, you feed the village, and it keeps going on. And what's Jesus saying here then? Well, if, if wedding feasts are a time when everyone is just supposed to show up and, and, and rejoice, then Jesus is saying, my disciples cannot fast because I am, the bride, I am the bridegroom. I'm the one that makes it inappropriate. Who I am and what I've come to do is so incredibly special that it would be just as foolish for my disciples to fast 
as it would be for our guests to deprive themselves at a wedding party. When you boil it down, Jesus is saying, my disciples don't need to fast because I'm the Lord of the feast. I am the life of the party. I bring the party. Jesus is not content just to burst their categories, but he continues to teach with parables about who he is. Look at verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worst tear is made. Now, back then, cloth was very expensive. Clothes were expensive. You, you made things to last, and when it tore, you fixed it. You patched it. But if you used a new cloth to patch an old clothes, then, well, when the new cloth shrunk, it would pull at the cloth, and it's going to make it worse over time and tear even worse. And now you've wasted it. The patch is, is gone. The tear is worse than ever. The next pair of rolls, even more graphic. Verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, back then, people drank wine a lot just because it was sterile. You would cut it with water. It wasn't nearly as strong as the wine we'd have today, maybe a tenth of our strength. And you would store that wine in leather wineskins. And at first, these, these skins were supple, and they had some give. And so, you know, the new wine would ferment and would expand with the skins. But over time, these wineskins would become brittle. And so, if you would fill old, brittle wineskins with the new wine that is still fermenting, it could cause the old to explode. And you're trying to force new wine into old wineskins, and then you would waste together the, 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 waste the new wine. you destroy the old wineskins. And this is Jesus' point. If you mix the old with the new, the new is wasted, the old is destroyed. But Jesus says at the end of verse 22, and this is the kicker, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Jesus says, I'm the new wine. I'm, I'm different than anything in your traditions that you've ever experienced. These, these do not apply to me and my followers. Notice he's not saying that scripture doesn't apply, but that the traditions do not apply. Now, there's a very good reason that Jesus is talking about a wedding here. It, it's a brilliant picture. And once again, you can just stop and admire his genius, that he can pull this out of the air as he's challenged on the fly. It's a great picture. It's a great comeback, but it's deeper than that. There's something special about a wedding. It's exciting. It shows the world that something new is happening, a new reality. Two is becoming one into existence. But in the Old Testament, how does God use the picture of a wedding? Well, it's about him and Israel, right? About him creating a people, bringing in a bride, how, how he woos and rescues her. And Hosea talks about how God redeems Israel, his adulterous bride. He leads her out with cords of kindness. And Jesus is already talking about how he's going to bring God's kingdom plan of redemption. The first thing that he preaches in Mark is the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And now he's starting to say that this great wedding feast is already, it's already on the horizon. He himself as God in the flesh is coming. He's the one who is bringing this long-awaited deliverance. So here's Jesus' longer answer. Here's why fasting doesn't make sense. Israel, you're fasting in hopes that God will bring the redemption of Israel. You're fasting, you're keeping the law so that Messiah will come. But don't you see, he has. I'm here. And if you continue to fast to do that, you're missing the point. Now, who talks like this? Who self-consciously says, I bring with me God's entire plan to save his people? You know, it's, it's, it's really easy to pass over what Jesus says here or to overlook this as a little religious dispute. And 
You look at these passages where, where there's this back and forth. They didn't miss it back then. What's their reaction to Jesus? Now, here he gets the last word. But in other passages, astonishment. Who talks like this? Who is this? You might have heard that question before. He's the Son of God. And Jesus claims, demand that you stop and think about them. What, what does Jesus mean us to do? Isn't it easy to get wrapped up in our little lives, planning our own parties that we forget that Jesus is the center of our life? He is the center of the party. One commentator puts it really well. I, I found this helpful. It's worth quoting just a few modifications. Let this sink in. This is what he says. Jesus is the new patch and the new wine. He is not an addition, attachment, or appendage to life as normal. The question posed by Jesus is not whether you make room for Jesus in your already full agendas and lives, like sewing a new patch on an old gar- garment or refilling an old container. No, the question is whether you will forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration, whether you will become entirely new containers for Jesus and the gospel. So fast or feast? Well, when Jesus is here, the answer is clear. He brings the feast. Now, you don't get the idea that his disciples were partying 24-7. Even as they followed Jesus, they endured many hardships. But their lives would have been full of joy as they basked in his presence. They learned from him. They, they, they saw his miracle. It would have been silly and inappropriate for them to fast while he was here. And it was natural for them to join in those parties in honor of their master. But what about us? Right? There's, there's a very real way that our lives are full of joy because of Christ and his spirit. But Jesus is gone now. And now that Jesus is gone, there's a surprise ending. Instead of feast, it's fast. Jesus, in his little parable, has a twist. Look at verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. Well, that's where we are now, right? Jesus has come. He's accomplished salvation. Now he's gone to heaven. He's ruling. He's giving us the spirit that's that's a cause for a great joy, but we're not there yet. Jesus is not here with us forever. He has not yet returned. And we are waiting for that time when Jesus will return. So now is the time when fasting is appropriate. Now, there are, are believers around the world that this passage is, is nothing new. It's not surprising. They live in persecution. They live in hunger. They can't wait for Jesus to come. They, they, they say that prayer, even so, come Lord Jesus. They are ready for this final feast to get started. And here's where this passage can challenge us. It should challenge us. That God has given you and me such a superabundance of physical blessings that you, you can literally have a party every day. You, know, you can eat to your heart's content. You can be sheltered from the harshness of weather and sometimes life. You can have entertainment on demand. Right? Now, the problem is, is that our bodies and our spirits are connected. So the way that you satisfy your body's desires has a profound way, an impact on the way you view reality, even spiritual reality. So what does your body tell you to believe? If you feast every day with food, entertainment, luxury, well, if you do that all the time or most of the time, it's going to tell you that, hey, the party's already started. That What you're waiting for can't be worth all that much because you're partying all the time. Now, you might not believe that intellectually, theologically, But if you allow your body to practice a constant feasting kind of lifestyle, you're going to find it hard, at least harder, to look forward to Jesus' return. 
And Jesus says in this passage, who I am is so great that your life will reflect at least some kind of mourning and fasting in my absence. So just ask you, reflect on your own life. Ask yourself, am I living a life right now where I treat myself to everything I want? Am I spending my money and my time right now like there's no life beyond the grave? Or is there ever a time in my life when I withhold pleasure or enjoyment Simply to remember that Jesus is not here. That's, that would be a fasting mentality. Now, I know many of you, as you walk in the Lord, and you do sacrifice. You sacrifice in, in your time. You sacrifice in your money. I, I, see, I see some of you pulling up and working on the church. or um, I know some of you, you're going and visiting people who are shut in. You, I'm grateful for that. I want to encourage you to connect this and and the difficulties that come with sacrifice, because even service of sacrifice has difficulties with it, whether it's that or something like fasting. I want you to connect this, the hardships, with a yearning for Jesus' coming. I've had more suffering than normal the last year and certainly have learned about drawing close to the Lord. But I still, as I look back, I, I believe I've missed out at least on some of the benefits of suffering because I didn't always cultivate a longing for Jesus from that. Sometimes I just cultivated a longing to be done with the suffering, which is understandable, but it's a, it's a time. It's a time for us to say, Lord, for whatever reason, this is difficult. It reminds me, oh yes, this world is not done. It is not perfect. Come, Lord Jesus. So let's have a concrete application from the passage. You know, do you ever fast? Do you ever go without food? Now, nowhere in the Bible does God explicitly command you to fast X amount of time, X amount of days. It's not there. Yet Jesus implies that this would be the natural action while he is away, right? That the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and, and then they will fast in that day. Not, not if, but when. And you see this in the early church. You can look in Acts 13 and 14, how by fasting they set aside leaders and sent them out. And as did much of the church through history. Now, I... For us, I, I think I should just mention that I think we have a fear of fasting. Um, we're afraid of hunger in our society. We, we are so insulated from difficulties. We just don't want to be hungry. And we, we are so blessed to have refrigeration and food that is shelf-stable that you can, you can literally you know, live 80 years and never be hungry in your life. That's, that's amazing. That's an amazing blessing. But I think because we fear hunger, it makes us unnecessarily suspicious of fasting. We want to be as far away from fasting as possible. It might even be bad for us. I'll tell you, with with a few small exceptions, medically and small children and uh, mothers who are pregnant or nursing, fasting is good for me. There's... I'm not going to dive into the physical benefits, but there are physical benefits that even doctors are starting to say, yeah, this is this is really useful. It's, it's unexplored wisdom from God on the physical side. And I mention these physical hang-ups because it might keep you from, from doing it. So just don't fear hunger. You might need to eat healthier food beforehand so that your body isn't saying, what are you doing? But, but don't fear hunger. There are physical benefits, but the main focus that Jesus brings is spiritual. And there are several reasons why fasting can be used as a spiritual discipline. But, but the one that Jesus mentions is simple. It reminds you that the party hasn't started yet. And as you withhold food from your body for a set period of time, you can use those hunger pains as a, remem- a reminder to pray, Oh Lord, would you come? You can cry out to God, Lord, as I hunger 
for food. Let me be hungry for you. Would you draw me close to you? And remind yourself that this world is good, but the best is still coming. Well, I would say for those of you, obviously those of you, if you have medical reasons, then there's other ways that you can do it. But for those of you who can, I would suggest start small. If you're not used to it, skip a meal and use that time to pray and meditate on Jesus coming. And then once you're used to that, skip two. And before you know it, you're at it 24 hours. There's several people who fasted with me for a day on my, on my fasting period said, you know, I really wasn't even hungry those this 24 hours, especially if you get doing something. So should we fast? Yes. Yes, we should. It's not a command. But Jesus says it is appropriate for your salvation. Now, for those of you who can't, you can do something else. But everyone else, don't just say, oh, I'm fasting from TV. That's my fasting. No. Jesus assumes that you will fast. Well, that might bring up the question, though, does it mean that it's wrong to feast now? Right? Was it inappropriate for everyone else to go and have a great meal at Brian and Allie's wedding? No, of course not. Because our answer to the fast and feast question is yes, it's both and. Because Jesus is coming back. He says, new wine is for fresh wineskins. You, you can get sometimes the idea from looking at church history that Christians are very grumpy. You know, that probably not here because we, we aren't very stir, but sometimes they go back and after Christians were persecuted and they weren't persecuted any longer and they're like, well, we don't have suffering. What should we do? And as Dr. Truman said, they, they said, I know. We'll persecute ourselves. Right? We'll, go out into the, we'll go out into the desert and we'll fast and we'll do all these things. Well, no, Christians should not be fasting killjoys all the time. Jesus doesn't say that. He says that when he leaves, it will be an appropriate time to fast, but not that we should do it all the time. And so, of course, there is times that we celebrate now because we know Jesus, because we have tasted him, because we can celebrate his world. There's very appropriate settings Next month will be my grandfather's 100th birthday. Of course we're going to celebrate. It's a wonderful time celebrating God's goodness. But as you do, remember that Jesus is the Lord of the feasts who will one day bring in the feast to top off all feasts. And it won't just be the food, it will be his presence that is most satisfying. I'll close with one more application. What's the best time to feast? Now, in the Old Testament, this was easy because there were feasts built into the schedule. God told them when to feast. He didn't give them, uh, but God doesn't give us that in the New Testament. There's no Thanksgiving or Christmas that's commanded to feast in the New Testament. We, we can do that. Well, it's a good thing, but God does give us a day of celebration from the New Testament. What is that? Well, it's Sunday. It's the Lord's Day, and God had to set it apart to make it special, and we celebrate Jesus' resurrection, and it's the day that we hear God's word and sometimes partake in the Lord's Supper. There's a feast with him. And the church understood this and celebrated with the love feasts. It went beyond the Lord's Supper. There was feasting. And so I would argue that God has given us a weekly feast day. I'm not saying that we should have a Thanksgiving spread every Sunday. Those of you who prepare the meals might be just kind of a little concerned there. But we talk about making Sunday the Lord's Day special at Faith Church. Well, a special meal even if it's not every week, can do that. Now, if you have a family budget for special days, why not spend it on Sunday? Why not get a nice cut of meat and, and invite some people over? That's a great way to celebrate that Jesus is the new wine. And to remind yourself as you begin the week that though Jesus is away, he will be coming back. And when that happens, then 
our fasting will be over. And it will be all feast. Please pray with me. Our Lord Jesus, you who suffered and went to the cross and died for us, you who endured the pain and the wrath of God, you who brought salvation for us, you have also told us to take up our cross and to follow you. And so would you help us to do that? Would you challenge us and convict us in this way that you assume that we are healthy, we will be fasting in some way, and that we could grow in this discipline and not become like the Pharisees, where, where we do it to do it, but we do it because we hunger and thirst for you. And would you use that and bless that? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.